God's word comes to us today from James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks be to God. Good to see all of you this afternoon. Would you join me now in prayer? Let's pray. And Father, we thank you once again for bringing us back here. In your faithfulness, you summon us out of the world into your presence so that we could worship you, your son Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit. Our great mysterious triune God, we come to you wanting for you to speak to your people once again. Father, I pray that you would speak powerfully into our hearts and whatever distracting thoughts, whatever worries and anxieties we may have brought with us this afternoon, would you cast them away so that we can trust in you. Lord, you have said that you are the kind of God where we can come to you with our burdens, where we can come to you where you would shield and protect us from all of our fears and sorrows. And so, Jesus, our God, would you come now and alleviate our fears, our anxieties, so that we could be fully present and fully aware and very teachable to the word that you will speak today through us. God, we pray that you'll bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, and we ask that we would come away from it changed and transformed more like you to the pleasure of your Father and for the glory of your name and the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You know, it's been said that the most important question that a human being could ever ask is the question, why? They say that the why question is really the most important question that you could ever ask in your whole life. Why am I here? Why do I suffer? Why is there death? Why? And indeed, it is true, the why question has revealed to us some of the most profound truths in the areas of science, philosophy, economics, technology, to where it has resulted in amazing flourishing in human life. Yes, indeed, the question why is very, very important. But with that in mind, it would be wrong to conclude that Why is the only important question that you could ever ask? Because I firmly believe that there is another question that we should be asking that is just as important to the question why, and that is the question how. I believe asking the question how is just as necessary as asking the question why. You see, life teaches us that how is just as important as why. Let me give you a couple examples to show you. Let's take something very rudimentary like, for example, eating. Eating is very, very important. All of us believe we know how to eat. We need to eat in order to live. But if you do not know how to properly eat, 
right, such as eating too much or eating the wrong kinds of food, the same activity that's supposed to give you life could actually be eroding your life to where you end up suffering and dying a very premature death. All because you don't know how. Or how about another activity that we take for granted like sleep? You know, for those of you who are going to be new parents in a couple months, you know, I know there's a couple of you in here and those of you who plan to be parents one day, you know, one of the things that you are going to discover once you bring that baby home for the first time is that you need to teach your child how to sleep. For those of you who are not parents, you may be weirded out by that idea. Like, what do you mean you have to teach a child how to sleep? What, don't, don't they know how to sleep? Believe it or not, most children do not know how to sleep. That's why parents do this thing called sleep training. Because if they don't do sleep training, that child is going to be miserable and so are you. In fact, some studies say that could actually impede healthy brain development in your child. See? See, life teaches us that answering the question of how is so important, even to things that we take for granted, even for things that we naturally assume we're able to do. Things that we're created to do, like eating, like sleeping, like working. We're continuing our sermon series that we started a few months ago entitled METS, M-E-T-S. And no, it's not a series about the greatest baseball team in the world, right? No, it's actually an acronym that stands for Members Equipped to Serve. And the purpose of this series is to look at the five crucial ministries that God calls every Christian to serve as his ministers. You see, there's a misconception in the church today, and that misconception basically says that the only people in the church who do quote-unquote ministries are the professional pastors like myself and Pastor James, right? But actually, the Bible teaches us that's absolutely not true. The Bible teaches us that if you are a follower of Jesus, not simply a minister of Jesus, but if you are a if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, you are by definition a minister of God. And there are five ministries that we've been looking at through this series to talk about, talk about all the various ministries that God calls us to serve. We've been lingering on the fourth ministry, which is our ministry to the world through our occupation, through our work. And today, we're going to look at one aspect of work to understand from a Christian's perspective, and that is how do we as Christians work in the world that we live in? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at why do we work as Christians, as followers of Jesus. Today, we're going to look at how are we to work as followers of Jesus. And to study this idea, we're going to take a look at three texts in James chapter 1, Genesis 3, and Colossians 3. Okay, so with that in mind, three things I want to share with you this afternoon, okay, in terms of how we are to work as followers of Jesus. First, the Bible says don't make work into an idol. Don't make work into an idol. Number two, don't be lazy with your work, okay? And finally, work as if you're working for Jesus. How are we to work as followers of Jesus? The Bible says, well, don't make work into an idol. Don't be lazy with your work and work as if you're working for Christ, okay? So let's jump right in. First, don't make work into an idol. Now, it goes without saying that we live in a culture that works a lot, right? That works way, way too much. And because all of you in here make up this culture that works way too much, that means most, if not all of you, work way too much. And this is something I know personally. Out of the many conversations that I've had with many of you over dinner, over coffee, or simply an aside conversation that we have here on Sundays or any other day, I know for many of you who are working right now, work way too much. It's not unheard of for many of you to have long stretches throughout the year where you're working 80 to 90 hours a week. Some of you work 
way past in midnight only to have to come home at 1 a.m. to get back right back up at 6 a.m. to go start another day. I know many of you college students, you guys study a lot. You guys study more than I did in college, but I thought was impossible. Many of you are working way, way a lot of hours in college, in school, studying voraciously where you spend more hours in the library, more hours in the coffee shop than you actually do in the classroom and more hours than you spend with your friends and family. We are a culture and we live in a city that is obsessed with working and working way too much. And just to show you in a form of a chart, let me show you this chart. This is an actual chart that was done a study that was done by the Bureau of Labor Statistics that try to measure out how most Americans today spend their time. And notice which piece of the pie has the biggest chunk. You see the yellow right there? That yellow says what? Working and related activities, 8.9 hours. And now, of course, this is a national study that was done all over the country. I am more than willing to bet that if this study was limited to just New York City, that yellow would be much bigger And the blue, which represents sleep, would be much, much smaller. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Right? (laughs) It's true. We work way, way too much. Now, some of you here who may not be Christian, if you're here investigating Christianity, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, yeah, I admit, we work a lot as a city. We work a lot as citizens, but so what? What's the big deal? Why is that such a problem? Why is that so bad? I mean, after all... You know, we are New Yorkers. You know, we have the unique responsibility, the unique burden of being the most influential city in the world. You know, we are the city that never sleeps. We have a reputation to uphold. What's so bad about working so much? What's so bad about working all the time? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to look at the first passage that we're going to look at today. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let's read it together one more time where the apostle James writes these words. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now notice what James says happens to the rich man in verse 11. What happens to him? He perishes in the midst of his pursuits. That word pursuits, according to New Testament scholars, is specifically a word that refers to the accomplishments and the rewards that you get from working. Okay, that word pursuits is referring to specifically the achievements, the accomplishments that you get from working a very productive life. And notice this rich person fades when? While in the midst, while he is in the middle of his pursuits. In other words, this guy dies while he is working towards his accomplishments with his job, which basically means he's a workaholic. He's working all the time to where when death arrives, it catches him in the middle of work and snuffs him out, right? And what does James says happens to this rich, always working workaholic? Verse 10, he is humiliated and he is shamed. Humiliated and shamed. According to James, If you work way too much, if you're working all the time, that will eventually lead you into being utterly humiliated and utterly ashamed. That is what James is saying here. Now, you're thinking to yourself, well, why is that the case? What is it about working way too much that eventually leads to your humiliation and shame? Well, it would be helpful to know that in the Bible, there really is one kind of person that gets humiliated and shamed like the way James is describing here. And that is the idolater. Someone who worships a false god. Someone who worships an idol. 
to prove it to you, let me read you a couple passages from the Bible. Psalm 97 verse 7 says this, All who worship idols are ashamed. Those who boast about worthless idols. Isaiah 42 verse 7 says, But those who trust in idols who say you are our gods will be turned away in what? Shame. Jeremiah 10, verse 14, everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The image he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. You see, James says that the workaholic will end up humiliated and shamed because the workaholic sees their job, sees their work as their God. In other words, the workaholic is left to shame and humiliation because they see their work as their idol. Now, for those of you here who go to church, those of you who've been with us for many years, you're probably thinking to yourself, wait a minute, Pastor John. Do you really think that because I work so much, that I work excessively, yes, I'll admit it, that I'm actually committing idolatry, that I'm worshiping a false god? No, 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 I don't do that. I'm a Christian. I'm here. I'm worshiping together with you and the rest of the other ones in this room. I can't be an idolater. I don't worship false gods. If that's what you think, consider this definition from Pastor Tim Keller over at Redeemer Church. This is from his book, Counterfeit Gods. Listen to how he defines an idol. He says this, quote, an idol is whatever you look to and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, Then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. You see, when most of us think of the word idol, we imagine some sort of uh, primitive shrine with some sort of statue. Maybe it's Buddha or Vishnu or whatever kind kind of weird god or goddesses that are out there in all the third world countries. And we assume that's an idol. That's idolatry, you know. It's, it's those people who live off in the rural areas in the world bowing down to some statue, and that's an idol, and I don't do that. But that's not how Keller or really how the Bible describes what an idol is. An idol is anything that you look to to give you your, sen- your own sense of significance, your own sense of importance, your own sense of value apart from God. And let's be honest, folks. Let's really be honest. Who of us in here do not feel any sense of significance, any sense of honor or value or importance from our work? The answer, nobody, because all of us in here, if we're brutally honest, we do look to our work to give us value, to give us significance, to give us a sense of importance, right? We look to that corner office. We look to that job title behind our name. We look to the salary that we get. We look to the recognition we get from our bosses and our peers as a means, a primary means for that matter, to make us feel important, valuable, and justified with our lives. We do. So much so that we are willing to do the very things that people do for their idols, which is what? Make sacrifices, right? For our work, we will sacrifice much. We will sacrifice our comforts, giving up our Friday nights, Saturday nights. We will give up our time, which is so precious to us. We will even give up our families because we're always at work rather than with them. It's so interesting, isn't it? How we're willing to give up time, how we're willing to give up time away from families. Two things that once they're gone are irreplaceable. Why is it that we're willing to give up these two unrepeatable right, commodities in our lives that are so important for the sake of work? See, the question that you have to ask yourselves when you think about the kind of sacrifices that you make for your work as your idol is this question. Is this sacrifice worth it? Is this sacrifice worth it? 
There was a recent article that came out in the LA Times entitled, American Work Obsession Outweighs Family Values. And it begins with these words, quote, We Americans are suckers for work. We put in more hours at our jobs than any people in the industrialized world except Koreans. (laughs) We take far fewer days of vacation than Europeans. In the last several years, many among us have seen our workload double while our income have stayed flat. And some of us have fallen into criticizing fellow workers who want a lighter load and more time with their families. Now, according to this article, we as a society are so obsessed with work that we end up judging, we end up ridiculing those who are not willing to work as much as us. Which conversely means we are willing to praise, we are willing to honor, we are willing to uplift those who are willing to put in the hours, who are willing to center their life around their work, who are willing to just be workaholics. But according to this author, who's not even a Christian, by the way, he says this, if you fall into that path, if you fall into that way of thinking, he says what? You are a sucker, which I think is L.A. way of speaking. You are a fool. Why? Two reasons. Reason number one. All this sacrifice of time, putting in more hours than the standard 40, 50-hour week, you get nothing in return, right? He says the workload is double, but the income has stayed flat. What's the point of sacrificing if there's no reward that comes from that sacrifice, when there's no gain, in this instance, financial gain from it? But perhaps the second reason why this person would say you're a sucker if you're a workaholic is perhaps the most important, that is, you end up neglecting the very people who are considered to be, who should be, the most important priorities in your life, your own family, your own blood. Now tell me, if you worshiped a God that made you sacrifice all your time, all your family, which again, once they're gone, they're not obtainable again, And what this God gives you in return is absolutely nothing, right? Is that God worth worshiping? Is it worth worshiping a God to where you give so much only to have nothing in return? You see, that is what idols do. That is what false gods do, okay? They make you give up everything and sacrifice everyone only to give you nothing in return. This is why the Bible warns us, do not fall into the trap of overworking. Do not fall into the idea that if you just work more hours and work all the time, that you'll have more honor, more praise, more significance, more importance. Because you won't. It will leave you instead with nothing and with no one. And when you come to that horrific realization, you'll realize that you've been made a fool. And you're going to be utterly humiliated and utterly shamed. That's why James says what he does. That's why he says if you work too much, you will inevitably be humiliated. You will be shamed. Now, some of you are hearing all this and you have a big smile inside of you. And the reason why you have a big smile inside of you is because you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm glad this doesn't apply to me. I'm glad I don't work too much. Right? Some of you kind of take pride in the fact that maybe you're not working much or at all and you think it's a talent or something. Right? You think, oh, you know, I'm not willing to make sacrifices for my work. I'm just, you know, sitting on my butt doing the bare minimum and getting paid the same amount. You know? And you kind of want to pat yourself on the back because you have avoided this tendency of workaholism that's so pervasive in our city. If that is you and you're about to tap, you know, yourself on the shoulder congratulating yourself, Wait, because I have something to say to you, and this leads me to my next point. Don't be lazy with your work. (laughs) As much as the Bible warns us 
of not falling into the trap of working way too much, therefore being a workaholic, the Bible equally warns us of not going into the other extreme of being completely lazy, of not doing hardly any work, of minimizing your work and not doing any sort of productive work whatsoever. Now, there are many reasons today why people do not give their all, do not give 100% to their jobs. But the Bible gives one specific reason over and over as one of the main, if not primary reason, why people are lazy at work. You know what that reason is? It's because of painful setbacks and frustration. The number one reason, according to Scripture, as to why we don't give it our all as we should when it comes to work is because we have to deal with a lot of problems, a lot of setbacks, a lot of frustrations when it comes to work. Now, for those of you in here who are mostly college students, I know we have a lot of college students, and you're already fantasizing right now about, oh, I can't wait to get out of school. I'm going to have this job and make this money and live in this neighborhood, drive this car, right? And I'm going to go to work every day with a big smile on my face. Sorry to burst your bubble, folks. You ready? It's going to be burst in just a moment. There's no such thing as a perfect job. Yes. Some of you are under the delusion that you think somewhere in the city there's that perfect girl, perfect guy. They don't exist. (laughs) You think somewhere in this city, somewhere in this world, there's that perfect job, ideal job. It doesn't exist. Okay. When you start working, you are going to realize that even the job that you think you want the most, once you get it, you're not going to be happy. Not all the time. Maybe most of the time. There is no such thing as the ideal job, just like there's no such thing as the ideal space. Can the married people say amen to that? Right? And the, whoa. And the reason why there's no such thing as a perfect job or an ideal work is because of what it says in Genesis 3, which is our next passage. Let's read it again, starting in verse 17. And to the man he, God said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you are made from dust, and to dust you will return. Okay, so here's what's going on. Adam and Eve, the very first human beings to whom we're all descended of, just committed the very first and the most egregious sin against God, the original sin, where they specifically ate from a tree where God specifically commanded them not to eat from. And as a result of this original sin, it created cosmic ramification that we still feel the rippling effects today that theologians sometimes refer to as the fall of man or simply the fall. And one of the major consequences that resulted from this fall is that the work that God originally intended for us to enjoy and to be completely successful in without any problems or setbacks now is filled with setbacks, problems, and even moments and failure. Thorns and thistles, sweat of your brow, work that God originally created for us to do productively, efficiently, perfectly is now filled with frustration, setback, sorrow, and failure. Listen again to how Tim Keller puts it. He says this, quote, The experience of work will include pain, conflict, envy, and fatigue. And not all of our goals will be met. For example, you may have an aspiration to do a certain kind of work and perform at a certain level of skill and quality, but you may never even get the opportunity to do the work you want, or if you do, you may not be able to do it as well as it needs to be done. 
Your conflicts with others in the workplace will sap your confidence and undermine your productivity. But even during times when you are satisfied with the quality of your work, you may be bitterly disappointed with the results. You may find that circumstances conspire to neutralize any real impact from your work. You may have mastered the skills of farming, but famine or flood or war come in and destroy your harvest. You may be a great singer, but you're not able to generate an income from your talent because you are skillful in music, but not in self-promotion, or because ruthless rivals finds ways of blackmailing you, blackballing you, excuse me. And so you have to give up your music career. Most people achieve very few goals in their lifetime. And even those who seem from a distance to lead charmed work lives will sense that their true aspirations are thwarted as often as they are reached. Because of humanity's collective rebellion against God, it has now caused the result of our work life being filled with frustration, setback, and even momentary failure or even chronic failure. And one of the temptations that any person can cave into when they're confronted with all this pain, all this setback, even moments of failure is what? No, put up with it, right? If you're always facing resistance in work, where you're putting in your all and it's all getting set back, where you're all not getting as productive as you want to be, or you're failing miserably, one of the temptations you want to do is, you know what? If this is the kind of return I get for working this hard, I'm not even going to try that hard, Right? I'm not even going to deal with it, right? I'm just going to work bare minimum. I'm not going to put in my all. Why? So all of it can just fizzle away in the form of failure, setback, conflict at work. Why bother? And as a result, we have many people in this city, many people in this world who work very half-heartedly or they don't even work at all. But here's what's so shocking. Out of all the groups that are in this world, who are tempted to work this way. Do you guys know which group has a tendency to give in to this temptation of not working that well or being lazy at work the most? It's Christians. Christians, more than any other group of people, have the tendency to fall into this temptation of being lazy at work than any other group of people. And you're thinking to yourself, why is that? The answer may be shocking to you. For them, it's because of Jesus. Jesus. What? Let me explain. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, it says this. The Apostle Paul says, Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in each other's businesses. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. Now, in order to understand this passage, you have to know a little bit about the background that Paul is writing to, to the Thessalonian church. You see, according to New Testament scholars... There were some Christians in this church who genuinely believed that Jesus was coming back the second time right away. They thought that Jesus was going to come again in his second coming, ushering the apocalypse, judgment day, right? And as a result, what do they think? Hey, if Jesus is coming back to judge this world where everything is going to burn up, uh, why should I work? Why should I bother making this world a better place if Jesus is coming in judgment only to tear it all up and make a brand new earth, right? That is what these Christians believed. And as a result, many of them were mooching off of their non-Christian family members, their non-Christian friends, giving a terrible testimony to the non-Christian world. And many of them went so far as the panhandling, begging on the streets, even harassing people, asking for money, asking for food. See, these Thessalonian Christians 
assume something about Jesus that sadly so many Christians today still assume about Jesus. And that assumption basically goes like this. Jesus does not care about this world. Many Christians today, as well as many Christians back in the city of Thessalonica, really believe that Jesus simply does not care about this world. You know, when I was in college, there was a very popular saying, a very popular phrase that a lot of Christians would say in their various campus ministries, campus Bible studies, and amongst their campus pastors. And that phrase went like this. There are three things that are going to last into eternity. God, the Word of God, and the people of God. You ever heard that phrase before? It's kind of an old phrase. It was very popular, you know, in the late uh, 80s and early 90s. And basically, that phrase is trying to capture the priorities of God. As far as God is concerned, the only thing he cares about is God, the Word of God, And the people of God. That's why those are the three that are going to last into eternity. Notice what's missing in that list. Work. Right? Work. And as a result, when Christians come to believe that the only thing that matters in the big picture of eternity, the only thing that's going to move on into the next world of reality, the new heavens and the new earth, is God, the word of God, and the people of God, what should you do? Well, that's simple. I should focus on God. Go to church all the time, hang out at church, do all church activities. I should focus on the Word of God. I should read the Bible, right? Instead of going to class, as I should, I'll skip class where I can read the Bible, do a Bible study. I actually had friends in college who would justify cutting class and say, you know, I'm I'm with Jesus. I'm praying. I can't bother with getting into organic chemistry. I was like, okay, see how you do in 10 years. But they genuinely believe that because the Word of God, that lasted into eternity. Or other people, you know, the people of God are what? are truly important. They last into eternity. They have eternal life. So you know what I should do? I should focus on ministering to people in the church, God's people, or I should make new people of God by evangelizing, going on missions, right? And whatever work I have to do, I just do to either support me, to go on missions, to support my church, or just to pay the bills enough just so that I can go out and do these activities. You ever been around Christians that think that way? That all they think are these things, these activities that are associated with them. And as a result, it perverts their understanding of work. It perverts their evaluation of work to where they give it such a low priority to where they think it's simply a necessary evil just to give you what you need long enough until Jesus comes back and rescue from this sin-infested world. But notice what Paul says in verse 12 to challenge that assumption. Listen to what he says. Urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. Question. Why does Paul give this command to work and he does it by evoking the name of Jesus? Why does he say, in the name of Jesus, I urge you to work rather than simply saying, I, the Apostle Paul, urge you to work? Because after all, he is an apostle. He has authority from God. So usually he doesn't evoke the name of Jesus that way because he has apostolic authority. And yet in this instance, he says, no, 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 no. It's not I, Paul, command you, I urge you to work. No, he says, I, in the name of Jesus. Jesus, I'm speaking for Jesus right now. This is Jesus talking when I say this to you. Jesus, the Lord of lords and God of gods, king of kings, commands you to work. Why does he use that kind of gravitas in this command? Because... Paul is trying to teach the Thessalonians and he's trying to teach us that the common assumption that God does not care about our work is absolutely wrong. Wrong. Jesus says to us in this passage through the word of his servant Paul, 
even though work is hard, even though work is filled with setbacks, even though work is filled with frustration and even moments of failure, I, your God, command you to work. Work diligently, work honestly, work reliably, work faithfully. Do not be lazy in your work because I, your God, Jesus, I value your work. This leads us to the inevitable question. Why? Why is our work, especially if it's not work in the church or work with God's people or studying the Bible, why is work in the city, work in the neighborhood, why are those things so important to God? Well, the answer to that leads me to my final point, work as if you're working for Jesus. Let's take a look at our final passage for today. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 to 24. Paul writes this, whatever you are doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not for people. Because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward. Serve the Lord Christ. Here Paul tells us another aspect of how we should work as followers of Jesus. And that is we should do our work, our jobs, as if we are working. Not for our boss, not for our managers, but for Jesus himself. That's how we should have the mindset in terms of how we work as Christians. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus says, if you have the mindset, excuse me, Paul says, if you have the mindset of working as if you're working for Jesus, you will avoid the two errors of either making work into an idol or being lazy with your work. How? Well, he tells us in verse 24. Listen again to what he says. You know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward. What is Paul saying here? He's saying this. Instead of looking to your work as the way to be valuable, instead of looking to your work as the way for you to feel significant, instead of looking to your work for you to feel important, look to Jesus. Let me say that again. Instead of looking to your work to make you feel valuable, instead of looking to your work to feel justified for your existence, instead of feeling important through your work, look to Jesus to feel those things, to experience those things. That is what Paul is saying. If you do, Paul goes on to say, if you work with the mindset that you're working for Christ, you will get a reward. Now, what's a reward? A reward is something tangible, right? Or maybe not, but it's something that signifies your value, your importance, your significance, right? When you are receiving a reward, that person who's giving you the reward is acknowledging you as a valuable, important, significant person in their eyes, right? And God says that if you work with the mindset as if you're working for Christ, you will get a reward. What reward is it? Paul says it's an inheritance. He calls it that. He simply calls it an inheritance. Now, here's something you need to understand about Paul. Whenever Paul refers to this inheritance that we're going to receive from God, it's always, always connected to the work of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says this. In him, in Jesus, we haven't obtained what? An inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, putting all this together, what do we have? What does this mean? It means we don't look to our work in order to get our sense of value and significance. No, we look to Jesus specifically. We look to the work of Jesus, his work on the cross as our Savior, as the means of giving us a high value of significance, a high sense of importance, a high sense of esteem. We depend on the labors of Jesus for us, not the labor that we give to a false God that we call work. 
in order for us to feel significant, important, and valuable. Because unlike our labor to our work, God, that calls us to sacrifice everything only to get nothing in return, Jesus labors for us that required him to sacrifice everything in order for us to get all things. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. And when you get this gospel, you will avoid, first of all, the trap of making work into an idol. Remember how I said my first point. People work way too much because they think the more I work, the more praises I get, the more value I have, the more important I am. But if you look to Jesus, you get those things. Because if you look to your work, you're going to end up humiliated. You're going to end up shamed. You're going to be made a fool of. But if you look to Jesus' work, for that sense of value and significance. What's going to happen? You're not going to be pressuring yourself. You're not going to be tempted to work way too much because you no longer have that inner drive. i got to keep working, otherwise I won't feel valuable or significant. Or no, you already have that, you see, through the work of Jesus for you. And as a result, you'll work, but you'll work reasonably. And you'll still have time, and you'll still have your family. And therefore, you won't be humiliated. You won't be made a fool. You see? You see that? But furthermore, if you get the gospel, you'll avoid being lazy with your work. Look again at what he says in verse 23. Whatever you are doing, work at it with enthusiasm. Ask to the Lord and not for people. Let me ask you this question. How in the world can Paul say that we are to be enthusiastic at our work when our work is filled with frustration, setback, and moments of failure? Let me ask you this question. When you have a bad day at work, when your boss rails at you for messing up on something that you really did mess up in, do you come out of that office thinking, yay, I'm so happy, I'm so with you? No, you don't, right? If you do, there's something wrong with you, right? You don't do that. The only time you ever get excited, the only time you get jubilated and, and full of enthusiasm at work is when your work is successful in such a way that you're making a positive impact that makes a lasting difference, right? That is the only time, that is the only way any of us feel enthusiastic. And so why would Paul almost mockingly tell us that we're to be enthusiastic with our work when our work is filled with frustrations, disappointments, and failures? Well, listen to what he says in verse 24. Serve the Lord Christ. You see that phrase? What does that mean? New Testament scholars tell us that phrase basically means this. Work for the one whose work makes a true and lasting difference. Work for the one whose work makes a true and lasting difference. The Bible says there's only one person whose work never fails, whose work never feels frustrated, whose work makes a lasting difference that goes on forever and ever and ever. Guess who this person is? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says this. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Only God's work is going to be forever. Only God's work makes a positive difference. Only God's work can cause enthusiasm. So here's the question. How can Paul say that we should be enthusiastic when our work isn't like God's and only God's work is justified in being enthusiastic? The only way you can resolve that is if your work is really God's work. If God is doing his work 
through you, if God is doing his work in you as you do your work. That is what the Bible teaches us. Your work is important to God because it's his work that you are doing. Or if I could put it this way, God is doing his work through you as you do your work in the world. The Bible tells us that part of why Jesus came to die on the cross as our, for our savior, as our savior from, for, from our sins excuse me, is not so that we can just be forgiven of our sins. It's not so that we can just have eternal life in heaven. Those are good things, by the way. But one of... Another primary reason why Jesus came to die on the cross is so that we could be changed and transformed to where our work is good work. So that we could work great. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10 says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. And then listen to what he says in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Don't you see? God cares about your work because it's really his work. And because it's his work, all of the good things that come out of it will go on forever and ever. That phrase that says the only things that matter for eternity is God, the word of God, and the people of God is not completely correct. What matters in eternity also includes the fruit of your labor. The work that you do, the results, the goals that come out of your work. Now, some of you are thinking, I still don't get this, Pastor John. I still don't see. Okay, you're saying that God still works through us to where we can be enthusiastic, but I don't always get my work done. Sometimes the work I produce is miserable. So how do you reconcile that idea? Let me see if this illustration could help. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Pastor Tim Keller tells a story that is called The Leaf of Niggle. Anyone ever heard the story, The Leaf of Niggle? It was written by J.R.R. Tolkien, who's also the same author of the Lord of the Rings series. And basically, the story is about a very gifted artist by the name of Niggle. And one day, he's inspired. He has a moment, like artists sometimes get. He has this, this epiphany. He sees this magnificent vision of a tree, a beautiful tree. In fact, this is his Sunum Bodum masterpiece that he envisions in his mind, where you see this beautiful tree, and behind it, these glorious mountains, and a beautiful canvas of the sun, and, and all these wonderful surroundings. And he's obsessed with capturing this vision onto a canvas. That's his work. And he's driven by it. And the story goes on to show that as he tries to get this tree on a canvas, life interrupts him. Right? Life happens. And his work gets held back. Days, weeks, months. In fact, there's a moment where his wife gets sick. And he has to put aside this work project for years. And just when he feels like he has time... He's dead. He dies. And the only thing he was able to produce from this vision of a tree is one single leaf. Hence the title of the story, The Leaf of Niggle. The story goes on to say that Niggle is now a spirit, right? A train, a celestial train is coming to take him into the heavenly city. And he boards this train on the way to heaven filled with regret, filled with sorrow. Why? Because this tree that was in his heart, that was burning within him to come out, expressed through his art, never came to pass. That is until he gets to heaven. Because right on the massive wall of the celestial city, what does he see? He sees his tree. Not a tree, but his tree, the exact tree that he envisioned in his mind. In reflecting on this story, Tim Keller writes these words as an application for all of us. He says this. 
Once or twice in your life, you may feel like you have finally gotten out a leaf when it comes to your work. But whatever your work, you need to know this. There really is a tree. Whatever you are seeking in your work, the city of justice and peace, the work of brilliance and beauty, the story, the order, the healing, it is there. There is a God, there is a future healed world that he will bring about. And your work is showing it now in part to others. Your work will be only partially successful on your best days in bringing that world about. But inevitably, that whole tree that you seek, the beauty, harmony, justice, comfort, joy, and community will come to fruition. If you know all this, you won't be despondent because you can get out only a leaf or two in this life. You will work with satisfaction and joy. You will not be puffed up by success or devastated by setbacks. What is Keller saying? He's saying what Paul is saying here. Be enthusiastic with your work. Work diligently. Work faithfully. Why? Because even though you'll have setbacks, even though you have moments of failure, God will make sure that his work will be complete when he comes back again and brings in the new heavens and the new earth so that the fruit of your labor that results in a beautiful world, a better place, people who are blessed will continue on forever and ever and ever. Do you understand that? Do you realize that all of the wonderful good that you do through your work, as well as the good that you could have done through your work but never could, will be finished and forever immortalized in the new heavens and the new earth? That is what Paul is assuming. That's why he can say, be enthusiastic when it comes to your work. Even when you face setbacks, even when you face thorns and thistles and you have the sweat of your brow, even when you have age robbing you of the opportunity to reach that goal, that goal will be met. Because God finishes what he starts. The work that you hope to do, the work that you hope would be a small taste of what the world will one day be like when Jesus renews all things, that work will be done. So work now. It's not a wasted thing. Give the people of this world a small taste. Give them a single leaf. Give them an appetizer of what this world will one day look like when Jesus reigns so that they will see Jesus as really the source of hope, as really the glorious one, so that they would worship him. Because all the things that they yearn for, for this world to be through their work, will come to pass, all because of what Jesus has done on the work, on the cross. If you understand that, you won't be lazy at all with your work. Far from it. You will work faithfully, and you'll work with endurance. And as you do, You'll give the people of this world something to have hope in, even if it's an incomplete picture, even if it's simply a a spiritual cosmic prototype. They will see something that points to something they were created for, they were destined for, to be with God forever in his city, forever loved by him, forever in communion with him. That is what you can show if you work faithfully, whether it's making a latte whether it's checking up on certificate updates at a school, whether it's preaching a sermon, whether it's taking care of children, whether it's unclogging a toilet, all of that foreshadows something glorious and beautiful that God is seeking for you to show this world through the little leaf that you can produce. So my challenge to you, brothers and sisters, is will you do it? If you do, This world will be so much better.
because it'll be a sneak preview of the world that is to come that anyone can have if they claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your continued grace and mercy. And Father, we do confess that we have fallen into the trap of either making work into an idol or being lazy with our work. And the one thing that we have not been in most cases is enthusiastic with our work. Father, we have been filled with so many frustrations and setbacks, even moments of failure, and we think, why bother? Why bother with any of it? But Father, help us not make the mistake of the Thessalonian Christians. Help us not to fall into the same trap of our ancient brothers and sisters in the faith, but instead help us to take heed the words of your servant Paul, who really are, who really is simply speaking your words, Jesus. We ask, Lord, that we would truly be obedient to you, for you are our God, you are our Savior, and you are the one who works through us in our work. Would you enable us to always have that faith, especially when we're tempted to work way too much as if we're trying to build heaven on earth or to be too lazy to where we think heaven doesn't involve work at all. God, help us to not fall into Help us instead to work faithfully, diligently, prophetically so that we can show the world through our work what is to come through your son Jesus. For we pray in his name, amen.